0: If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me uh, to Luke chapter 22. And we are beginning in verse 46. I'm going to grab the verse uh, from the previous section. Luke 22, we're going to start in verse 46. If you remember last week, this text was bookended by Christ calling his disciples to pray so that they would not enter temptation. Here's what we read. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd And the man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. And he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray this son of man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour. And that hour and the power of darkness. The grace of God in the word of God that's been preserved for us that we get to be brought right there, having Holy Spirit words to the exact account as to what happened. To be able to see these events unfold, what we get to partake in, what we've been partaking in the last month and, and the upcoming months, to be able to see Christ now on his last day of his life, to see what he was like, to, to see what happened, to see the spiritual battle is a blessing from God. It's encouragement to our souls as we see our Christ conquer. As we approach this text, we need to grab that last verse from last week's sermon. This call to pray so that you may not enter temptation. We looked at how temptation is alive and well, not because evil is just out there, but because our hearts have wayward desires. Our hearts want what's evil out there and that's how we enter into temptation. Jesus lived in an evil world and yet never sinned because his passions and his desires were right. And so we saw that prayer is where our will and perspective gets aligned with God's. Let me say that again. Prayer is where our will or our passions and perspective gets aligned with God's. That's how through prayer, we can not enter into temptation, but we can be delivered from evil. And so you can see the charge of this message is pray so that you'll not be found in the crowd. You'll not be found a hypocrite. You'll not be found trusting in man. You'll not be found fighting your enemies. You'll not be found believing things are out of control and you'll not be found overcome by the power of darkness And if you're someone who takes notes, I just want to help you think through this a little bit. Maybe to the left of those numbers, not be found in the crowd. So this is a group of people that are there. Not be found a hypocrite. That's Judas, right? Not be found trusting in man. That's what Peter's doing as he grabs the sword along with his disciples, they're asking the question, should we, should we pick up our sword? Not be found fighting our enemies with the disciples. Not be found believing things are out of control, which is also seen in the disciples. The other gospels show them fleeing. And not be found overcome with the power of Darkness in which we see everyone except for Christ being overcome in this hour to some degree by the deception of the evil one. So ultimately, it's to not be found in the power of Satan and evil. So let's look at this text and see how our hearts can grow in confidence in God, grow in love for Christ, and how we can be found a people that pray. Look at verse 47. While he was still speaking, we get brought into this narrative from section to section to section. It's just all holding together. And this has been going on for a week. We've we've gotten details on this whole last week of Jesus' life. The text that we're in right now is taking place in the middle of the night on Friday morning. The previous Saturday... Jesus entered into Bethany a week after raising Lazarus from the dead and Jesus' fame spreading to a fever pitch. He shows up in Bethany. Bethany is two miles east of Jerusalem. There's one valley between the Temple Mount and Jerusalem and it's called the Kidron Valley. It's just less than two miles east of Jerusalem maybe a half hour walk. And so Jesus arrives in Bethany the previous Saturday, surely has sweet fellowship, recounting what God has done in Lazarus, who is dead for four days and has now been raised. Sunday, many people, now that his fame has spread, come and seek him and he teaches and meets with the crowds monday is the triumphal entry when they hail him the son of david their king they think he's going in to overthrow the roman government supernaturally but he surprises them as he returns to the mount of olives across the kidron valley which is a private garden that evidently they were given permission to, when, when they go into Jerusalem during the day, they're able to reside there in the evening. Tuesday, Jesus goes back in to Jerusalem, walks into the temple and cleanses it. Jesus cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry and he cleanses the temple at the end of his ministry, and he teaches there. He drives out the money changers. This is the week where those in the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees make bank with their business in the temple. And Jesus drives them out and he teaches about the kingdom of God. In the evening, he returns to the Mount of Olives, teaches in the temple on Wednesday, returns back to the Mount of Olives where he gives the Olivet Discourse and teaches them about his second coming. Thursday throughout the day, they're making preparation for the Lord's Supper. Since Peter and John to make preparation. No one knows where it's it's going to be prepared. They don't even know. They're supposed to follow the guy with carrying water. That evening, he eats the last supper with them. He dismisses Judas and he teaches them all that we see in John 13 through the high priestly prayer in John 17. And immediately after he leaves the upper room, they go to the garden. That's what we saw last week. And they go to the garden of Gethsemane and he tells the disciples to wait here and he goes a stone's throw away to pray. He tells them to pray so that they not enter temptation and Jesus asks, is there any way that this cup be taken from him? Not his will be done, but the Lord's will be done. There is no other way to assuage with the wrath of God than for Jesus Christ to drink it down. And so you see Christ sweating drops of blood. We can't imagine. He knew your sin. He knew my sin. He knew what the wrath of God was And the man of all men, after praying, stands up. Comes back to the disciples. Wakes them up and says, pray. And then our text begins. And here's what he says. Here's what we read. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. Now let's just stop there for a moment. I've always pictured this crowd like 30 people. I watched the passion of the Christ and it seemed like about 30 people with swords and torches coming for him. Remember, the plan is to catch him in private in the night, not in front of the people. They don't want to riot They're scared of him, and they're scared what the crowds would do. And so when Jesus dismisses Judas, tells him to go do what he's going to do, he goes and tells the chief priests, the Sadducees, the leaders of Israel, the time is now. You want to get him? I know where he's at. He's in private with the disciples, now's the time to capture Christ. If you look down to verse 52, we see present, he said to the chief priests and officers of the temple, this would be like the temple police, the chief priests would be the leading Sadducees of the day. So you have the officers of the temple and you have the elders the Sanhedrin present in this crown and if you want to turn to John 18 I'm going to have you put your finger in both John 18 and Matthew 26 which are the parallel accounts which just help us in this narrative to get a picture with what's Going on in John 18, verse 3. We'll start in verse 2. Now, Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with the disciples. So, Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, so these would be Roman soldiers. And in fact, the Greek word for band of soldiers is Aspiria. The word is spyrian. It means cohort. It's one-tenth of a legion. And a legion is 6,000 Roman troops. So there is 600 soldiers there in the crowd along with the chief priests, the leading Sadducees, Matthew tells us the Pharisees and the scribes are there. The temple police are there. The Roman soldiers have the power to kill. The temple police don't. According to John MacArthur, the temple police carried clubs. So they could beat people to keep order in the temple, but you needed Romans to kill people. And so John MacArthur's estimate based on these facts is there's probably almost a thousand people that show up to arrest Jesus Christ in the crowd. It's a bigger crowd than I had imagined. These are paranoid people. They already know Jesus can do miracles. This is their best chance they've ever had and they don't want to blow it. They want to get him. And they want to get it right. And they want to get the right one. This is at night they have lanterns, and they have torches, and they have swords, and they have weapons. The Gospels tell us they show up with all these things, but it's dark, and they need to get the right one. How bad would it be? Jesus has already slipped through their hands so many different times because it wasn't time for him to die. You don't want to accidentally arrest someone other than Christ and so they had a plan for that they're thinking of everything they want everyone there no one trusts anyone to get the job done on their own why didn't you arrest him no one spoke like him before all right we're going this time we're going to make sure the job gets done and so we see the crowd. In the crowd, there's religious folks. There's Romans who are for justice. There's servants, for example, of the high priest Melchius, who gets his ear chopped off. The crowd is a wide mass of people and then so in verse 47 while he was still speaking there came a crowd and a man called Judas one of the twelve was leading them Luke does not want us to miss with this statement one of the twelve how tragic Judas is being a betrayer to betray means to expose one's country or a group or a person to danger by treacherously giving information to an enemy you look at betrayer in the dictionary judas should be there has there ever been anyone who fits this definition better than judas how much love had Judas experienced those three years from Christ? How much wisdom has, could he have gained from Christ during those three years? Luke wants us to see that this evil is committed from within the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. And Judas was, we've already seen, is the one. Satan entered his heart. We saw that earlier already. He went and said, okay, how much will you give me? 30 pieces of silver. It seems like Judas is realizing the course that Jesus is on. It's going to end in his death. Judas was hoping this was going to end with financial gain for himself. He was willing to waste three years of his life being poor, having so poor in his mind that he had to steal out of the money bag. But for what? He thought Christ was going to be a king. He thought he was going to have a high position, a high status, and now it's not going to happen. So what can he get back out of those three years? He can get back 30 pieces of silver. And so that's his plan. And he's been waiting for an opportunity when he knows when Jesus will be isolated at night. And this is his opportunity. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss what we see here is jesus christ is in perfect control of the situation you can imagine the giddy plan is the sanhedrin here do we have the high priest here did someone go get the roman soldiers and tell them how an insurrection is about to happen by this Christ, how there was just a riot on Monday earlier this week. They were hailing him, king, get the 600 soldiers together. You could see them. You can could, you could almost see them there getting ready. Okay, now what's the plan? What's the plan? How are we going to know? How are we going to get the right one? Judas says, I know. I'll kiss him. Then you'll know who to arrest. You'll know who to tie up. You'll know who to grab. Put yourself in Judah's shoes. You're coming to this moment in your life. You're going to execute your plan. And before you get there, he says to you, are you going to betray the son of man with a kiss? He can't go back on his plan. Jesus is showing, you have no control, Judas. I I know what you're doing. I know exactly what is happening right now. And this is the most disgusting act. I don't know what word you put on it. In those days, MacArthur says that a slave was allowed to kiss the back of a hand of someone who is greater than them. Someone who is just greater than a slave, but not as great as the one they are greeting, can kiss the palm of the hand or the fringe of the robe. But a kiss on the face is a kiss of two equals. We're the same. We're on the same status. We're at the same level. And surely Jesus has kissed his disciples. But did the disciples ever come and initiate and say we're on the same standing with you but here's Judas and he's going to betray the son of man. The man for us. The second Adam, he's going to betray him with a kiss. Matthew tells us, Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Now, it's not intimate word for friendship, phileo, but it's a friendly term. It's like saying, hey, buddy, hey, man. Do what you came to do. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they're putting it together. They said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? All right. I want to take you to John 18 here and show you this. we'll start in verse 3 so Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him see John's letting us know that none of this is taking Christ by surprise Jesus knowing all that would happen to him came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Who's your warrant for? Who ye you after? Because the Roman soldiers had to have, know what they're coming to do. What are the orders? Who who you after? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And they drew back and fell to the ground. So here, MacArthur says, they, he thinks, refers to everyone who came, that when Jesus took the same words that God spoke to Moses, who should I say that you are? I am who I am. I am he. They were knocked to the ground, the crowd. (laughs) Knocked to the ground. This is God, the creator of the universe. What's that look like? Is it like a domino effect as they all fly back and knock each other over? And then they stand up to dust themselves off. The reason why I took you there now is the disciples are saying, now should we strike with the sword? They have two swords, remember? Jesus said it's enough. Not at all meaning that those were enough swords to defeat that army but maybe the disciples watching them get struck to the ground supernaturally they believe these two swords are gonna win us the battle i don't know they're asking the question So they said, I don't know if it was one speaking on behalf of the whole or if they were saying at the same time, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them, the servant of the high priest cut off his right ear. So the servant of the high priest. Imagine being this fellow. Your job is to serve the high priest. You get woken up in the middle of the night. Okay, we're going to arrest this Christ figure and this is a more interesting night than most and you're going along and next thing you know, you dodge a sword and your right ear comes off. But Jesus said no more of this and he touched his ear and healed him. Luke is the one that tells us, the physician, that Christ healed him, that he touched his ear. What's that look like? Here's my question, and we don't have an answer for it. So does he touch where his ear was? And then an ear grows back? And then you feel your ear and see your ear on the ground? Or does he grab the ear down here? and I don't know. But, Supernaturally, in a moment, his ear was put on. In one moment, Jesus teaches Christianity for all the time. This thing is not going to spread by the sword. Violence is not the way Christianity moves forward. Peter tried it. Jesus said, no, Jesus reverses what Peter did. Heals his ear. He's going to be standing before Pilate and going to say, If my kingdom were of this world, my people would be fighting. The king we fight for is at the right hand of God. And his kingdom is already in our hearts and not yet on this earth, but will be on this earth when the king comes from the right hand of God and makes his home down here on earth and then every one of the military enemies all the kings of the earth will submit to his rod of iron as he destroys them but you see peter doing what i probably you or i would do what are you supposed to do you're in a bad circumstance things are ugly Jesus said, buy a couple swords. Seems like the right thing to do, but it's obviously not. John tells us this young man's name is Melchias. wonder what his next couple days was like. You know, they're walking around, grabbing onto your ear, they're crucifying him over here. Your boss is saying what a good thing it is. We finally got him. And yet, the one that should be your enemy heals you. The thing I want to show you, and you're going to see it more in this text, is even in his arrest, Jesus is in total control. Does he not just shine forth from the text with total confidence? knowing what he's doing and what is going on? And then we read in verse 52, then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers and the, of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? He's showing them their cowardliness. For real? <laughs> I just, Tossed you guys out of the temple. And then I taught there all day. You're afraid to come after me then because you're cowards. You're afraid of the crowd. And then when did I ever hurt anyone? Everywhere I go, I heal. I preach good news to the poor. And you're showing up, treating me like I'm a robber or an insurrectionist. That you bring all these soldiers? Really? You thought you needed all this? In John 18... or actually uh, Matthew 26 in verse 52, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Peter is actually committing murder in the moment. The sword is given to the government authority. If you were to take off his head, Peter, it would be right for them to take off your head, instituting or just affirming capital punishment. That's what it means to live by the sword. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And then he says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he'll at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Well, you guys know that a legion is 6,000. So we're talking about 72,000 angels. He's saying, really, Peter, you're going to grab a sword? Do you not realize that I could, in a moment, ask the Father to send 72,000 angels when in 2 Kings we see that one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians in one day? One angel, 185,000 Assyrians? See, here's the question. When you read the Bible, if I ask you, do you believe it? I know you're all going to say, I believe it. But we got to continue asking ourselves, do I believe it? Because if you freak out, when circumstances get bad or you start putting your hope in some politician or in man or the wisdom of man, we quit believing that the Bible's true, that Jesus Christ is in control. Things are not out of control in Ukraine today. They are not out of control. Christ is in control. He is sovereign over all things and he's sovereign over all your suffering and your worst circumstances on the worst day of your life. And not only could God call 72,000 legions on your behalf, Christ himself has put his spirit to live inside of you with promises, the one who is the truth, with promises that I'll never leave you or forsake you. And you have angels, by the way, because Christ warned how you treat Christians because their angels see me, see my father's face every day. Do you believe the Bible? Do you believe Christ? Do you believe it's true? No wonder. Wouldn't it be so frustrating being Jesus? He really believes it. He knows it's a hundred percent true. Your best friends, he's a real human being. He has real friends and he really loves them. And they really don't have a thousandth of the faith that he has. He knows his father is awesome. That's why he spends half the Sermon on the Mount trying to show them that my father is a rewarder to those who love him. His whole life, he he repeats a statement, ye of little faith. It had to have been frustrating. We're so doubtful. We're so weak. Peter is weak. The disciples are weak. We're weak. But he wasn't. He shines through. And so he says, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. He says, you're here now because God sovereignly said, you can be here now. This is your hour. That's why you're here. And this is power at work of the evil one right now, and they are under its sway. And so the charge of the sermon is pray, that you may not enter temptation and be found in the crowd. Understand this, they're all wrong. They're all wrong. A thousand people, religious ones, looking, yeah, the high priest, oh, the Pharisees, oh, the Sanhedrin, oh, everybody's here. I must be right. Look at who's here. He's a rebel. You saw that riot, didn't you? You saw him hailing him as king. The Romans are there for justice, and they're wrong. Everything's unjust. Everything's evil that's taking place in this crowd and they're under the sway of the evil one. And so Jesus says, pray, pray. Do you, do you realize that you can be in line with Satan? That you can be under his deception, under his sway. And my question for you is, do you believe that? Do you believe that? That if you don't pray, you don't gain your perspective by reading the Bible and praying, and you don't have your will changed through it, that you will happily, even think it's right, align with the evil one. Pray so that you're not found a hypocrite. All right, we're going we're to run through all six of these, all right? It's a good time to take notes if you're going to take notes. Pray that you'll not be found in the crowd, but be found standing in the truth. There's one person that's right in this text, and it's Jesus. There's one person that is right, and it's Jesus, and he's found in the truth, and he was just previously praying. Pray so that you'll not be found a hypocrite, but rather be found faithful. Loving Jesus, a hypocrite, A a hypocrite never loves Christ. Follow the sayings of Christ, gain the respect of all the other disciples. His outward conduct must have looked good. They trusted him with the money. He fooled everybody except Jesus. He didn't love Jesus. He didn't think Jesus was worthy of all of his life. He had to go get 30 pieces of silver. Here's my question. Do you believe Jesus is worthy of your life? Can he have it? Can he have control of it? Do you love him? Is he worthy of it? The Christian and not the hypocrite says, yes. Yes, they might look like the disciples that are often weak and have little faith, But the prayer of their heart is, what I do ought to glorify you. You are worthy of it. Pray so that you'll not be found trusting in man, but found trusting in Christ. The one who prays, doesn't think he has the wisdom or the power and goes to God for spiritual things. We're not to be found trusting in the war horse, trusting in the king. Our devotions last night was Psalm 2. The nation's rage, the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and the Lord's anointed, and Jesus sits in the heaven and laughs at their rebellion as it's no real rebellion. Kiss the son lest he be angry with you. Why would you put your trust in someone that Jesus is laughing at? Pray so that you will not be found fighting your enemies. Peter hadn't yet learned that he wasn't to try to kill the high priest's servant, but give up his own life if need be for preaching and showing the love of Christ. Be found loving them. Paul says, overcome evil with good. That's what Jesus does. Peter Waps an ear off, Jesus puts it back on. Pray so that you not be found believing that things are out of control but trusting God's good plan in your suffering. This is a tough day. <laughs> They're tired. It's 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. None of us function very good at that time this is a bad day the one you left your nets for the one you're following is being arrested and he already told you he's going to die and rather than running scared like all the disciples did trust God's plan in suffering in your pain See, it's real simple. He's either sovereign over your life or he's not. And if he's sovereign over your life, he's sovereign over your circumstances. And that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care about your suffering. Because Jesus says, let them go if you're coming for me. You're after Jesus of Nazareth? Okay, let them go. Even there, Jesus is knows their weakness. Jesus knows Peter is going to fail. That's why he prayed so that his faith wouldn't fail but he would restore the brothers after he's been restored. He's sovereign over your suffering. He doesn't laugh at it. He knows you're weak. He loves you but there's purpose in it and you might never know it and you don't need to know it. You just got to know he's good and that he's in control and that he rose from the dead and that on our worst day, actually turns into the best day because of Christ. And we need to be found praying and not sleeping so that we're not overcome by the power of darkness, but we're found being led by the light. Christ is that light. Christ in this text is shining bright. He's in total control. He's acting like no other man would act. He is found in the truth. He is found faithful. He is found trusting God. He is found loving his enemies. He's found trusting in God's plan. And he's courageously taking the blows of evil in order to overcome evil. As he takes the best onslaught of Satan, he destroys Satan. He conquers sin by dying on the cross. He raises from the dead. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. And the question is this, how do you relate to Christ? I know none of you are good enough. All of us fall short of those things, right? Jesus was the only one who shone forth as glorious in this text. But here's the good news. Jesus came to live that perfect life in exchange for your sinful life. If you'll trust in him, if you know your are a sinner, if you know there's no hope before God in and of yourself, if you know you sin often, then you better look to Christ because he is your substitute. When you trust in him, that perfect life, that perfect obedience is given to you. It's called righteousness. It's put into your account. in Christ goes to the cross bearing your sin, bearing the wrath of God. And so he came to save people like you and I. And the amazing thing is, He, after you're saved, he gives you a new heart. He puts the Holy Spirit in you. The Holy Spirit helps you understand the Word of God. So then we can go to God in prayer, have perfect access to the Father because of Christ, the mediator. The Holy Spirit even takes their imperfect prayers and prays them perfect so that we can actually enter into a dark world and become more and more like Christ. Not being given to temptation, not being deceived, but we can grow and one day we'll be perfect. When we die or when he returns, we'll be glorified. He's worthy of all of our life, is he not? We tend to give up on God when our circumstances turn hard. It says if Satan comes and says, see, I told you so. God isn't good. If God was good, this wouldn't be happening in your life. But what we see through all of Jesus' suffering is God sovereignly ordained it for our good. And the best news in the world is we don't have to figure it all out. You don't have to figure out why you're suffering the way you're suffering. You just need to know that Christ is in control and that Christ is good and that your suffering is never in vain. Father, thank you for our glorious Christ Thank you for Christ. Even before he wins our salvation on the cross, he's displaying grace and mercy being shown to his enemies in such a way you can't hardly believe it, but it shines so bright. Father, make us like that because Christ is worthy and because his love gets poured into our hearts and because his joy is set before us, let us enter into suffering, being able to even love our enemies. Lord, thank you. We pray this in his name. Amen.